All right, so we are starting a new series. It's going to lead us to Easter called The Bad Boys of Easter. But real quick, I want to remind you that um, in the lobby, we have these little cards here. I think I have one. Maybe I do. Nope, apparently I lost it. See, I can't be trusted with anything. I have these little cards, right? They look, they're little business cards. And what they are is it's an opportunity for you to invite your friends to come to church. And here's the, here's the cool thing is Easter is one of those times like Christmas where folks are going to be more open to the gospel than ever before. Simply because everybody knows on Easter, you go to church with grandma, right? You go to church with grandma. You go to church with mom and dad. That's what you do. Now, some of you, you're like, I am far younger than a grandmother. I am far younger than a father. And that's, that might be true, but you have the opportunity to invite somebody to come to church. So I encourage you. I encourage you, grab one of those cards, and you just invite them, and people go, man, it's so awkward, Brandon. I don't know how to invite somebody to church. I give you somebody's got a simple thing that I do. You listen for three knots, okay? You listen for things aren't going well. Somebody's got things that aren't going well. You listen for things that aren't going good at home, and you listen for the, I'm not sure what to do next. When those things pop up in a conversation, it's an easy opportunity for you to invite them to come to church because the idea is not to fill the room. The idea is to get them the hope of Jesus. Somebody say amen. That's what we're after here. So if you have a card, just invite them, hey, come sit with me. And you go, Brandon, I'm serving that weekend. Well, hey, thank you for serving on Easter, but we have two services. So you have the opportunity to sit one with them, then you can serve the other. Talk to your team leader if that's your thing and you got somebody in mind, you've been working on it, talk to your team leader, they'll get you squared away and they'll move you around as need be. So I encourage you to do that. So here's something that I've noticed about Christians as we get started today. Something I've noticed about Christians, being a Christian, being a believer for about 10 years now and being a pastor for about five, I've noticed that Christians often resist the God we say we trust. We do. We often resist the God we say we trust. And some of you go, no, Brandon, that's not right. And it's like, yes, it is. Listen, uh, you have something called uh, an ought to phrase is what I describe it as. And these are when you sit around and you say, I ought to. I ought to start going to the gym. I ought to start watching. Yeah, right? We have ought to phrases. And sometimes our ought to phrases are directly connected to what we know we should do in our relationship with God, aren't they? Now, I ought to forgive her. The Bible says I ought to forgive her. But that's awfully hard. I mean, I ought to go to church. But that's, ah, man, I don't know. I, I ought to treat him better. I mean, I, I ought to read my Bible. I ought to pray more. Right? We, we have ought to phrases. And what the ought to phrase really does, if we get to the core of it, is it shows a little resistance to the God we say we trust. Because if it was full trust in God, let, let me give you an example of trust. Every one of you right now are trusting something. You are trusting that chair right now. Come on. <laughs> Every one of you. You sat down. You didn't even say a prayer before you sat down in that chair. You just sat down in that chair, and it was all trust all the time. Nothing but trust, right? And when that, if that chair fails you, you're going to be like, never sit down again. At least not in this church. You'll be like, this church, they're cheap. They buy the cheap chairs. But the point is, is you're trusting something because when you trust something wholeheartedly, you just sit down. You just, you're just there. You're not resisting the chair right now. But the truth is, some of us sit back, and this is just the nature of it as humans. As Christians, we resist the God we say we trust. 
And for those of you that are not Jesus followers in the room, you look around and you say, yeah, I've met those Christians. Ain't nobody like to be around those Christians. We don't like to be around those Christians. We don't like to eat dinner with those Christians. We don't want to go to church with those Christians. I'm not going to the Easter service with those Christians, right? I don't want to be around those Christians because they have a word for those Christians, right? And I mean, you know that word, hypocrite, hypocrite. Now, let me save the Jesus followers in the room for just a second. Let me, let me shed some light on some of that. Now, if you're a non-believer, you've got to give us Christians some space, okay? Because it is really hard to trust a God that you've never seen with your own two eyes. I mean, let's just be honest. Sometimes that's difficult. We're such visual and sensory creatures, right? So it's really hard to trust a God that you've never seen. It's really hard to trust a God that you don't always see working. Right, And you've heard me say many times, just because you don't see it doesn't mean he's not working. But it's really hard to trust God when you don't see him working the way you expect him to work. And then here's the most difficult one that none of us in here would say out loud, but maybe we need to wrestle with. We have trouble trusting God. We don't know his agenda. We don't know his agenda compared to ours. Well, I have a plan for my life, Brandon, and I know exactly where this is going to end in 10 years. I know what I want it to look like. I know the job I want to have. I know how many kids I want to have. I want to know what career field I'm in and what career field I don't want to go in. I know exactly what I want to lay out. And it's awfully hard to hand all of that over to your heavenly father when he didn't send you the playbook this week. It's awfully difficult as a follower of Christ to do that. And listen, if I described any of that and you're like, yeah, dude, that's me. Listen, you're human. You're human. It's okay. We are going to struggle with God. We see it time and time again in the Bible. In fact, our man Jacob actually struggled with God. Broke his hip, serves him right, but he struggled with God. And he was just the beginning of a blueprint that happened all throughout Scripture. People struggling to trust the Lord over and over and over again. It's called the human condition. It's not an excuse, but I'm trying to help you understand that it's part of our nature and something we have to resist. Now, we're going to spend the next three weeks, and we're going to end it on Easter, talking specifically about the bad boys of Easter, the villains of Easter, okay? So these are the folks that you hear the stories and you don't pay any attention to. You may have never heard a sermon about these guys because they're not the star of the story. We all know the star of the story is Jesus. Somebody say amen. That's the star of the story. But we learn a lot about human nature and a lot about ourselves if we look at how people reacted to Jesus and how people handled Jesus because Jesus was so countercultural. He made everybody in the room uncomfortable sometimes. And the truth is, if you read your Bible, you get a little uncomfortable, right? It's because the Spirit of Jesus is telling you you ought to stop doing it. There's that ought to phrase again. Something we got to stop. So the point is, is we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at specific characters in the Easter story, text you've probably breezed over, you've never spent a lot of time on, but we're going to look and see how they responded to Jesus, how they behaved, and maybe, if I can be a little honest, I'm going to make the argument every week that there's a little bit of them in us. So, go ahead and tuck your toes under your seats because I'm going to step on them just a little bit this morning. But what we're going to find out as we look through all of these individuals and all these folks we're going to look at the next few weeks is that their resistance to the will of God actually demonstrated more clearly how futile it is to resist God. 
their resistance and the result of their resistance actually demonstrates how futile it is to resist God. How much if you resist God, you never come out on top. But we often think we can. We often think if you grew up in a legalistic environment, you think if I just do the right things and say the right things and say the right prayers and give the right amount and show up, I mean, if I show up to church every Sunday, if I give the 10%, if I go to the prayer meeting and I go to a small group, then hey, I've got all the checks in the boxes, God, where is my blessing? Why aren't you lining up with my agenda? We expect that. And if you didn't grow up in that background, then maybe for you, it's a numerous amounts of things. But the point is, is that when we, we resist the Lord, and when we resist him, it's futile. It truly is futile. So our character today that we're going to study is Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas. Now, he was the Jewish high priest between 18 AD and 36 AD. He was appointed by a Roman governor because that's how it worked. What Rome did is they allowed the Jews and the surrounding properties, that's how Rome got so big, was they allowed the folks to keep their religion and a degree of their political influence. So that's how Rome was able to expand so quickly. They would conquer a place, and then they wouldn't just conquer a place and make them all become Romans. They would become Romans, but then they would let, allow them to keep some of their cultures, how they really expanded, and they were able to do that. So they... He was one of the ones appointed by the Roman governor. Now, it's important to remember, or maybe we never taught this, uh, Joseph Caiaphas actually was, his whole family was connected, just totally connected with the political powers. His family had the high priesthood for 40 years. 40 years, one family was in control of the most powerful religious spot in all of Jerusalem. Now, Caiaphas himself was 18 years as the high priest. That is a long time to be high priest. That is a very long time to be high priest. And you're like, okay, well, what does a high priest do? Well, I want you to think similar to the Catholic Pope, how they, the Catholic Church looks to the Pope and listens to him, and that's kind of the influence the Pope has. If the Pope grabs the microphone, everybody pays attention in the Catholic Church. It's very similar to what would happen in the high priesthood. The difference a little bit is that the high priest would act as liaison politically for the nation of Israel to the Roman Empire. So he would meet with Pontius Pilate often. He would talk about things. They would handle situations that came up. In fact, what would happen is there were rebellions that would come up from time to time. And the first thing the Roman governor would do was look at the high priest and say, you better fix your nonsense. Or I'm going to come in with a Roman sword and fix it myself, which was a big problem. They didn't want that. They couldn't have that. They couldn't handle that. They, could, they didn't want that at all. Because then all those freedoms that the Jewish nation had would go away. So they didn't want the Romans to come in and do that. So the high priest had a responsibility. He had two specific fears of influence that were so powerful in that day and age. And if we're honest, it's still the two most powerful political or two most powerful spheres of influence today. And the first was that he had a religious fear of influence. He was the high priest. He went into the Holy of Holies once a year. And as he went into that Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope to his foot in case the presence of God killed him, and they'd pull him out. The only Caveat is the presence of God left the Holy of Holies years before that. But he would go in there, and the thought was that he had to be the holiest man in Israel to go in. I mean, he had gone in 14 times prior to the time we jump onto the pages of history right now with him. He had gone in numerous, numerous times, and he made it out. So he's obviously the holiest man in Israel. He's obviously the holiest Jew that we know. So we've got 
to listen to him. If he says it, that settles it. That's the way that they treated the religious influence of the political of the high priest. The next one was the political influence, because again, connected to the Roman governor. He handled things. When the Roman governor had an issue, he went to the high priest, said, high priest, I got some problems. And the high priest said, you got it, boss. I'll take care of those problems. And you can imagine some of the things he did. What he did to Jesus was likely not the first time he had done it. Because there were rebellions and rabbis and influence, and sometimes maybe it was a good thing, and other times it may have been a bad thing. The goal for, Pilate, or for uh, Caiaphas, we have to remember, is he had been in power for that long. And power corrupts. And he had been in there for so long. And if you remember the way they worked the temple system at the time, it was abusing the, the law of Moses to influence and control the population. It wasn't the way God intended it. We had a problem. Caiaphas was connected. He had perks to his job, too. He got lots of money because he controlled the temple. When that money came in, y'all remember the time when Jesus gets really mad Jesus? Jack Jesus, where he flips the table. My Jesus is yoked. I don't know if you're Jesus in your head. My Jesus is like yoked. And when he flips that table, that sucker flips seven times before it lands, and money's all over the place, and it's just a big mess, right? Because that's, that's how I see my Jesus. You can keep your nice little lamb. I got a big one. So the point, my, my, my point is the reason Jesus flipped that was because they were upcharging for the sacrificial uh, animals. So since they were upcharging, where do you think all that money went? Went to the pocket of the high priest and the religious leaders. It didn't go for the new mortar in the temple. It went to the high priest, which is part of the whole reason Jesus got so mad and started flipping tables and whipping people. It was a problem. He was very, very upset with that. But his family, Caiaphas, family controlled the high priesthood for 40 years, had religious influence, had political influence. He was the president of the Sanhedrin, so he was the one that could make and determine the laws. So when something was written in the Torah, the law of Moses, he could look and say, well, we interpret it this way. And then the whole nation, no challenges, nothing, not like a council that got together, not a group of elders that got together. He could just say, this is how we interpret it. And they were like, he says it, that settles it. And that's how they handled everything at the time. He had money, he had influence, he had everything that he could want. But then comes along this guy named Jesus. Jesus Josephson. Now, some of you sit and go, no, his last name's Christ. No, Christ is a title, okay? Christ means Messiah, okay? So when, when you get really mad or your father-in-law gets really mad when he hits his thumb and misses that nail and he yells, Jesus, he's actually saying Jesus Messiah. He's not saying Jesus' full name. Jesus' full name was most likely Jesus Josephson, Josephson, not Josephson, that'd be weird, Josephson, <laughs> Josephson. And here's a brain twister for you, I'll throw this out, I ain't gonna tell us at the 11 o'clock, we'll see, but Jesus actually wasn't his name. <gasps> name was Yeshua. His name was Yeshua, which is Joshua essentially because Jesus was supposed to be a conqueror. And then tra through transliteration, we get the name Jesus. Fun fact for the day, that one's free. Won't even pass the plate again. So, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi that comes onto the pages of history, and when he comes on the pages of history, he, he's causing problems for Caiaphas, because Jesus had influence too, except he, he handled things differently. There were three specific places that Jesus just drove Caiaphas crazy. The first was that Jesus attracted crowds, 
He could get groups of people together. And he, he always didn't even seem like he was trying to do that. It seemed like he was maybe just teaching and people would gather because, listen to this, people who were nothing like, like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were nothing like him loved him. And all of a sudden, sinners were called to repentance. And all of a sudden, Jesus is sitting and eating with sinners, and people are like, what is he doing? And then those sinners come to see their, their ways is wrong and change their attitude. So he created crowds. And it's almost like they couldn't understand how he was doing it. Jesus wasn't necessarily teaching something special. There were teachings contrary to the temple that happened all the time. That was part of the rebellions that the temple ran into and why the high priest would put these things to rest. So the fact that Jesus was teaching something that wasn't necessarily in line with the narrative coming from the temple wasn't the problem. The problem was Jesus could get groups of people together. And if you could get groups of people together and you could hold them together, then that meant you might have enough influence to create a rebellion, which then caused a problem because then the high priest would be the one to deal with that when the Romans came in and said, hey, we got to handle this. You can't be having all this people running around. The second problem with Jesus is that he spoke as if he had authority, but he had none according to the earthly de definition of authority. I mean, the, the temple hadn't given him authority. Caiaphas hadn't given him authority. And for people to respond to, the way, to Jesus the way they were and to say he spoke as if someone had authority, that made them very, very uncomfortable. It's almost like Jesus was teaching, and when Jesus was teaching, that he was somehow connected to something that they could never reach. It's almost like he was connected to a power source that they didn't understand. And when we sit back and see, think through it in the Looking back on it now, we understand what, can, what power source he was connected to and where his authority came from. But for them, they didn't fully understand, and it made them uncomfortable. And then the last part about Jesus, he couldn't stand corruption. Like I said, Jack Jesus flipping tables, whipping people. They done did it wrong. In fact, one of the times, Jesus is so frustrated and so done with, I mean, this He's so done with corruption that he says this. Listen to what he says. This is in Matthew chapter 23. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So he's acknowledging the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's acknowledging them and saying, yes, they are in a seat of power. You are absolutely true. He even affirms them. He says, so be careful to do everything they tell you. To which all of them standing in the crowd, because they were in the crowds often, they sat back and they go, that's right. Listen to what we say. Daggone it. And then Jesus is like, hold on, I ain't done yet. Um, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So he says, the law they're teaching to some degree is correct. They sit in the seat of Moses. You honor their authority. God's, God's kingdom is built on spiritual authority. So you honor their authority, <laughs> but don't do what they do. Don't be corrupt like they are corrupt. I mean, can you imagine how frustrating it would have been for the religious leaders to experience that, standing right there so close? Man. And then he goes on to spend the next 30 verses, not three, not 13, 30 verses to tear the religious leaders apart. It's, he includes the seven woes in there, and it's like, woe to you, woe to you. And he is like describing the religious leaders, and he calls them out multiple times in this big section. And to them, they're like, dude, what is this guy doing? I mean, come on. Jesus had, had enough of the corruption that was happening 
in his father's temple. And then he finishes it with this. He puts the exclamation point on it. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That was Jesus. Some of y'all thinking this sounds like Old Testament God. No, that's Jesus God that's saying that stuff because he was sick and tired of the corruption. Now, this is important. This is really, really important. Notice that Jesus didn't tell them to go to hell. So you don't get to say that to your coworker and say, Jesus said it. You don't get to do that this week, okay? You don't get to do that. Jesus said you are being condemned to hell, meaning it had already happened because of their actions. So don't go in and say, Jesus said behave, not okay. He said they are, go- how will they escape being condemned based on their behavior that they're doing? It was a problem. Jesus threatened the peace and the peacekeepers. They had a problem. This man Jesus taught with authority. This man Jesus could gather big crowds of people. And this man Jesus was calling out the temple and the corruption in it. They had to figure out what to do. The final straw, the final straw was a certain miracle. Miracle that all of you have heard. A miracle that we sung about in this worship today. And it caused a tremendous problem. Because of this miracle, Jesus demonstrated his dominion and power over death and the grave. You know the story. It was Lazarus. And see, the thing with Lazarus wasn't that it could have been mistaken. Like, it wasn't like, oh, Lazarus died and Jesus comes and touches him and then he raises from the dead. It didn't happen that quickly. Lazarus was in the grave for somebody help me. Does any of the biblical scholars know how many, how many days was Lazarus in the grave? Anybody? Four. Four days. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible says he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. And that's how long he had been in the grave. He had been in there so long that his body would stink. In fact, they even call back and Mary goes, hold on, if you roll that that rock away, we're going to get something. We don't want none of that. She didn't even believe Jesus had the power to do it. She didn't even believe he had the capability to do it. Nobody was expecting him to do this. It's one thing if somebody falls dead in front of him and he touches them. Could have been a mistake. They could have fainted. There's tons of excuses. Even in that day and age, they could have given But for him to be raised after days and being stinky, that was a problem. That was a big problem for the religious leaders because then Jesus demonstrates his power over death, hell, and the grave. And again, big crowds. Jesus is there. And if you remember in the story, Jesus specifically says, I'm not going to go yet because I want everybody to know. It's for your benefit and for Lazarus' benefit that I do not go. So, Big crowds of people. Lazarus was well-known in the community from best we can tell. Religious, non-religious people were there. And in the Jewish culture, they would mourn for multiple days. It wasn't like today where we have one ceremony, like you may have a visitation or a viewing and then you have the funeral. In those days, it was a lot longer of a process. And and so they had had him in the tomb for that long, but the city or the, the village was still in the mourning phases of it. Jesus, gather, Jesus shows up, everybody's gathered around. It's like, oh, that rabbi is here, and we've seen him do crazy things. I mean, he took a couple pieces of, of bread and some fish and fed lots of people, so that's crazy. I've heard people said he walked on water, so that's kind of wild. Um, he he did said a weird thing about you know drinking his blood and eating his flesh, but that's okay. We can forgive that. We'll figure that out later. Uh, there were so many things that Jesus did that made people kind of lean in. 
And so he shows up, and they're like, ooh, what's up with this rabbi guy? And Jesus gets everybody's attention. He comforts the family first, and then he goes to the tomb. And the story ends this way. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, somebody read it for me. Come out. He didn't even walk in. He didn't have to go in. Nothing. And the whole village is like, we put him in there. And when I imagine when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, everybody said, he's lost it. That's it. We were waiting for him to break. This is the moment Jesus broke. Until the dead man came out. And when the dead man came out, His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. They had already buried him. It was done. Game over. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And now all the religious leaders should have been like, he's here. Yes, the Messiah. Somebody finally, this is it. This is it. We've got him. He's here. I mean, for every, every one of us, if any one of y'all were there, we would be jumping for joy. If any one of us had experienced anything close to that, knowing what we know now in our faith, we would have been like, I mean, you know, somebody had to help me up. That's all I'm saying. I'd have fell. I've been slain in the spirit, y'all. It would have been done. Somebody going to have to help the pastor up because I'm, I'm excited. And that's what should have happened for the religious leaders. I mean, Caiaphas, the high priest, he, sh- he knew the text. He understood what was going on. Caiaphas should have been the one leading the charge out there. But that's not the response they had. They didn't have that response at all. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, to which the meeting should have been like, all right, Caiaphas, you done, Jesus, you in. That's what the meeting should have been about. The meeting should have been, okay, how do we give this guy all of our authority, all of our influence, let's sing it, get him in temple, let's get him to speak at church this weekend, right? Like we should have, that's what the meeting should have been about, but it wasn't about that. They gathered the meeting and they said, what are we accomplishing? What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. Signs point to something. They were pointing to who he was. If we let him go on like this, listen, as if they had the opportunity. If we let him, as if they are allowing him to raise people from the dead. Come on, somebody. That's ridiculous. Can you imagine being in that meeting? I imagine the junior guy there is sitting there like, these people's crazy. He's a person from the dead. What you talking about? We allow him. What if he gets mad and snaps his fingers? That would have been my, I would have been, I would have been the dude in the middle being like, yo, we got to check ourselves because this guy's got some power. (laughs) If we let him go on like this, listen to what they say. Everybody will believe in him. That's the point. (laughs) And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. There it is. There it is. Not interested in the Messiah coming, not interested in salvation. Now, hold on. If we allow this to continue, if we allow this to continue, we lose something. Because who knows what happens when they hand that thing over to Jesus? If Caiaphas isn't the high priest, then who knows who has all the power and authority? We don't know about this Jesus guy. We can't trust him. I'm not comfortable giving it all to him. That's not what this is going to do. 
We're not going to do this. We're not even going to entertain that conversation. If, we sh- if Jesus gets in here, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And you guys have heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating. Following Jesus will cost you something. It does. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, it means you're going to say no to yourself and yes to what he has for you. It means you're going to have to say no to yourself occasionally, and you're going to have to say yes to whatever he's asked you to do, whatever he's commanded you to do. You have to say no to your agenda and yes to your heavenly father's agenda. Following Jesus is going to cost you something. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you the prosperity gospel that as soon as you follow Jesus, you get everything you want all the time, every day. I've been, I've been preaching for five years, been a pastor, or been a, a, in a Christian for 10 years, and I still don't have a Maserati. <laughs> I've been praying. It don't work like that. It don't work like that. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, our man, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Now remember, he's the president. He's the chair of the board. He's running this joint. This is him. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you, there it is again, better for you that one man die. And then he stops and catches himself and he's like, oh, <laughs> not for you, for the people that the whole nation, for the people, for the people. Don't you guys understand? It's for the people. Then that the whole nation perish. Let's be honest, Caiaphas, that's what's best for you. Because we all, who needs a high priest when the Messiah showed up? Who needs somebody to go into the Holy of Holies when the Holy of Holies is standing there? Bye, Jesus. We need you to go. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together to make them one. The really disgusting part is when it said he prophesied that year, he decided to prophesy that Jesus would die for the benefit of the nation. He did that to get the Sanhedrin and everybody else to believe that Jesus had to die. He used spiritual language to affirm his sin, to affirm what he was going to do. The text tells us, so from that day on, he's gotten everybody on it. The Sanhedrin is there. He prophesied about it. Now, John, looking back, goes, I see what they prophesied. God can redeem everything. Caiaphas didn't know what he was doing when he prophesied about it. He got all the Sanhedrin together. He got all the religious leaders. He got everybody moving in one direction. And that direction was kill Jesus. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They plotted to take his life. Now, Rome would not execute over violations of Jewish law. They just didn't care. Rome didn't care. So they would allow some punishment to happen for the Israel. Israel could enact some punishments on people, but they couldn't enact death. So there's a lot of things they could do, but they couldn't, they couldn't kill somebody because that's, that's murder. Uh, in fact, killing was reserved for Romans. So they could do that, Rome could do that, but the, the temple couldn't. So the temple needed the Roman Empire to kill Jesus because they couldn't do it. So they needed it to happen in a public way so that everybody saw Jesus disgraced. 
The only way they could get that that would be done by crucifixion, the only way that they could actually accomplish that is if they somehow proved that Jesus was challenging the Roman authority. Now, Jesus up to this point has not said a word about rebellion, has not said a word about gathering people and charging into Jerusalem, much to his disciples' disdain. He's not put together an army. He's not put together a treasury. He's not put together anything associated with that at all. But Caiaphas realizes, hold on, he's saying Messiah, right? People are saying that. Didn't he say something about being a king? Or didn't he say something about kingdom? Aren't we hearing that kind of language? From him? Didn't he do a big sermon one time where he said, Kingdom of God? I mean, couldn't we say Kingdom of Israel at that point? I mean, we could probably get there. And so Caiaphas' legal position when he approached Pilate was that Jesus was a rebel. And Jesus was going to try to overthrow the Roman Empire. So we've got to do something. And through lying and deceit, Caiaphas, Caiaphas gets Jesus before Pilate. Pilate washes his hands of the blood and Jesus carries the top part of his cross out to Golgotha and he's crucified in front of the whole world so everybody can see. A demonstration of Roman power and a demonstration do not defy the temple. Do not defy the temple. So Caiaphas sits back, sits back in his recliner Leans back, probably cracks a beer. Threat eliminated. No problem. Jesus is gone. No rebellion, no more issues. We'll wait. I've been a good high priest. Probably got me another 10 years now. We handled this issue. No, no harm, no foul. Position secured. Until Caiaphas was told that the body was gone. And then that caused Caiaphas to go, Huh. And he tried to say, oh, no, 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 we took it. Yeah, 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 we got it. The temple guards got it. Somebody else has got it. Until then, people started seeing Jesus a couple days later, to which everybody said, well, wait a second. People are seeing Jesus. Caiaphas starts to lose control a little bit. And then after that, on the day of Pentecost, during the Festival of Weeks, which is something that Caiaphas loves to do, it's a festival. High priests have a big influence on the festival. They have a big part to play. And the part that took the center stage was not the part of Caiaphas. It was the part of Peter, who stood after denying his Savior, stood on the street corners and spoke in languages that he didn't understand. And it was heard by 15 different people groups. And then the text tells us that there were thousands added to their number that day. Caiaphas lost control. Because he never had it. His example shows us the futility of resisting God. Caiaphas had the opportunity. And then years later, Caiaphas lost his position and the Jews lost their temple. And then ancient Judaism would never resurrect the same way. Temple Judaism never came back. Caiaphas, as the high priest, said he trusted God. But his actions said something completely different. And if we're honest, the same is true for us. Caiaphas got to this place where he said he trusted God, but it became all about his self-preservation. It was about him. My desires, my needs, 
what I want, God, it's got to fit inside this box, and if it doesn't fit inside this box, we got a problem. God, I need you to fit it inside this box and look the way that I want it to look, because if it doesn't, there is a significant issue. And Caiaphas thought this way, and he missed the Savior. He was the one that should have seen him coming a mile away. Not crazy John in the wilderness. It should have been the high priest who knows the text, who understands it. But he missed it because it was all about him and his own preservation. It's interesting because Caiaphas becomes a footnote in the story of Christ. He's a footnote. He's known forever as the guy that sent Jesus to the cross. No significant kingdom impact at all, but yet he had the most powerful religious seat and should have been the one to influence everything. The position of self-preservation always results in destruction. The minute that you start to protect what you've done, the minute that that becomes the most important thing in your life, the minute that you start resisting God is the minute that you start your path down your own destruction. Caiaphas was an outplay of a human thing that we experience all the time. God starts to pull us in one direction. We stick our hands and feet out. We dig our heels in and we say, no, God, I'm not going there. No, Lord, that's not happening. No, I ain't doing that. Ain't about that life. That ain't me. And when we do that, we start a path down self-destruction because you put something else in the position of God and you create a little God. You create a little God. You trade the eternal for the immediate. And we flip to self-preservation mode. It becomes all about your business, your career, your college, everything about you. And then before you know it, we are just like Caiaphas. Because listen to me. That little God that you've created is never enough. For Caiaphas, it was never enough. It was never enough. He had to protect, 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 insulate. Nobody else could come. This was the responsibility. This was my responsibility. This is what I've got to do. But if we're honest, you compromise your integrity, you compromise your character, you compromise so many things about yourself when you start worshiping a little God. Those little gods can seem real big for a second, but it's just for a second. And it's because we resist what God says. We resist the God we say we trust. So as we go forward, let's not be like Caiaphas. Let's not resist the God we say we trust, the God we lift our hands to in here. Let's prepare that it's not going to look the way we want it to look. And there's times when we expect things from God, but he does something different. And when those moments happen, Let's not be like Caiaphas and go into self-preservation mode where we got to hold on to it and it's got to be mine and I got to protect it. And, and God, you don't understand, I built this thing. God, I built this wealth. God, I built this family. God I, God, I built this career. God, you don't understand. You want me to go somewhere else? No, 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 you can't do that. I have built this thing. God, you can work over there and I'll let you come over here occasionally as I feel comfortable. And then I'll, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. And if you make me uncomfortable, I'm going to push you away just a little bit. When self-preservation like that begins to take over, 
You damage your relationship with your heavenly Father, and it leads to destruction. Not just spiritually, but also in all the other avenues of your life. Because when you start preserving everything else, you stop caring for everybody else. You can't. Caiaphas missed it. He missed the call that God had on his life. He missed the opportunity. He missed as high priest. He had the most influence. And he missed it. Because it was all about him. It's all about what he wanted, what he expected. So let me ask you a question that's going to make you probably a little uncomfortable. Do you have a little God in your life right now? Is there something that's taken the position of God to where if God even shows up, you would miss it? Because you're not letting that go. God, I'll let the other things go, but I'm not letting that go. I'll let the other things happen. God, I'm not letting that go. Ask me for anything else. Don't ask me for that. Don't ask me for my business, Lord. Don't, don't, Lord, don't ask, don't ask me for this. God, don't ask me for you fill in the blank. Do you have something that you're resisting God with? Maybe he's pulling you in a certain direction and you've just got your feet planted and your cleats dug in and you're like, God, I'm not. If you do, you have a little God. And as I said before, a little God is never enough. It's never enough. As we close, I would love to pray for you guys. Father, Father, this is, this is, it's difficult to acknowledge that we have a little bit of Caiaphas in us. It's difficult to acknowledge that when things get hard, we lean into self-preservation sometimes. When things get difficult, we lean to protecting ourselves. And God, we forget and we miss the, the, the fact that we hurt when that happens. We destroy things when that happens. Most importantly, we destroy our relationship with you. We say we trust you in one breath, God, and then we tell you your left and right lateral limits in the next. We say, God, don't go outside the lines. Stay within this little avenue that I've given you to run in my life. So Lord, I pray for everyone who's a believer in here right now. God, that we would begin to tear down those barriers that we've put up for you. I mean, come on, that's, God, when we say it, it seems ridiculous. That we would put up barriers for the almighty God, for the God we worship, for the God we say we trust, and the God we claim to love then we say, not here, Lord, not that way, not this way. So Father, I pray that you would move on our hearts. Lord, that you would would remind us that we can trust you. And God, that your Holy Spirit would give us the courage to take that step. Lord, if anybody in here is not a believer, They want to take that step of faith because they've heard that you can be trusted. I want to give them the opportunity to do that now. Lord, we pray that we admit our need for you, Lord. We believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. 
and we commit our lives to you. God, we, we love you. And we don't want to stay and remain this way. Holy Spirit, help us become something different and be nothing like Caiaphas. We give you all the praises, Lord. And the church said...